G'day guys and welcome to the Coach Mark Carroll podcast. This episode is going to be a bit more exciting. I actually have a guest on it, so it's not just me talking to you for 30 minutes straight. This one is a big guest and this is someone I've wanted to have on for a long time. This is Kasim Hansen. How are you doing, Kasim? I am great, man. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So Kasim is a person who I've always looked up to for the last I think it was almost 10 years. I was thinking today since I first kind of heard about Kasim and he's someone, if you followed me for a long time on social media, I've referenced a lot as being someone, you know, I've learned from and, and has helped really, you know, create a lot of ideas and made me question a lot of the things I've been doing. And yeah, so Kasim is the owner of N1 and I'm sure you've seen him all over on social media. So Kasim, do you want to tell everyone a little about yourself just so the the audience who doesn't know, which I'm sure is only a few people, gets a bit of understanding? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's been 10 years, I guess you guys could assume I'm old, um, which I'm slowly starting to realize we're, we're getting up there, right? I'm, I'm like almost hitting the four zero or whatever. You got um, more hair than me. Yeah. I, I'm hiding it with a hat for those of you guys that uh, are just listening here. Um, it's slowly going, I'm catching up to Mark, but I'm a coach that's been in the industry. I mean, I should say I'm a retired coach. I've been, you know, working with everything from performance athletes to people that, you know, can barely get out of bed in the morning to people on the Olympia stage. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the, I'm one of those people that's like a lifelong learner and I'm obsessively curious about this industry, like in terms of just always wanting to learn a little bit more. Like there's never been a point in my career where I've been satisfied. And that's, you know, I think, you know, it's both kind of a dangerous, but also a fun place, you know, to kind to kind of be. Um, and that's just led me to, you know, pursue what now is in one education where all the things that I've accumulated and learned uh, we're now teaching to coaches, trainers, physique athletes, uh, and just trying to be as innovative. Um, I look at it as, I'm trying to give people the things that I wish I had at the beginning of my career. Right. And the things that I still wish existed in terms of like, you know, very, very applicable information instead of like, like here's just a bunch of stuff. Right. I think for the, for fitness to make it accessible to everybody, like you have to teach things and you have to give people information that they can easily use and apply and that gets people, you know, to buy in, to want to then learn a little bit more and try a little bit harder and do do things and et cetera. So it's really about like, you know, trying to get people successful right at the very beginning on their fitness journey, both like from a physical standpoint, but also an intellectual standpoint. Yeah. I think when I first kind of got into really diving into N1 stuff, I, I think you guys really begun N1 around about, was it 2018? Was that sound, sound about right? Yep. March, 2018. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's when I really obviously started investing. I did the um, program design and obviously probably the most well-known one is the bioma- biomechanics course, which I've said many times is probably the best course I've done or the, definitely the most kind of in-depth course I've done, which I recommend to everyone, any coach, who knows me knows I've, I've, I've said great things about that course. And something I found was that on the surface, kind of on social media, you know, it's quite easy to put things out. And I know you have an issue with people kind of 
watching a post on social media and then taking it as gospel and then going, all right, this is how it's done. Kasim said, you have to do your bridges like this or, or pull downs like this. And with social media, it's often easy to really kind of take away something really black and white, but that's why the power of actually, you know, going to learn from you and diving into courses, people realize quickly in the courses that it's not all black and white. There's so much nuance to it. And I think, social media doesn't really do it justice, just how much kind of context matters. And for you, just how much detail you go into stuff. And so often you see people copy your stuff and put it out as we often joke about on TikTok and stuff like that. It's funny because often I think you probably see it. People who see your stuff or use your stuff, I often say it like a cask loop bridge. Then I kind of see who is this person? Then I notice they're not following you. They're not following me. It's just kind of being like parroted down and down and down to something. It's kind of like Chinese whispers, something that's not really even accurate. So do you find with putting out stuff on social media and education at your level, it's quite hard to not have people just take a simple black and white kind of stance on things? Yeah. I mean, social media is the place where nuance kind of goes to die. That's, that's just, that's just where it is. People don't have patience, you know, they just want to like, you know, they want to be entertained or very quickly engaged with something that, that looks nice, sounds nice or whatever, you know, most people don't get on there to think. Um, and so by nature, the content that I put out is, we'll say not the most engaging or viral way to display that content. But if you take that content and you simplify it, you cut the context and the nuances. And they're just like, hey, here, check this out. Best exercise for whatever body part, you know, super optimal. Then all of a sudden that does extremely well. And so the temptation to want to do that is very, very high. I mean, there are people that have literally made a career like building a following, just taking stuff that we stuff that we post. And then just reducing it to the simplest way that they can think to put it out there. Right. And I'm not talking like, oh, people have gained a few thousand. I'm talking like people that have like been able to like build up, a, you know, followers of millions um, doing this. Right. Which is, is just far more than, than what I could do. But to me being like a purist in what we do, I think that's an injustice to the information because yes, all the nuance and, and stuff is lost. So, you know, in a way it gets the ideas out there more. But two, those ideas aren't what they were originally. They're like a shadow of what the, you know, of what the idea or what the exercise was. So that part's unfortunate. And I, I honestly, I go back and forth with how I feel about that whole situation, you know? See, I think it's hard because in one way, it's a huge compliment to you that so many people want to use your, your knowledge. But then the big thing, I probably find, and you would know much better because you can see who actually obviously invested in your courses. Like obviously myself, my brother, Glenn, you know, we did the online courses. Then we did our practical with you in Sydney for the week. You know, we've gone and invested into these courses, which, you know, they're not cheap and that's because they're excellent. But so often I think you probably see these people who copying your stuff word for word or not word for word, just even more simply and you probably say, think, who is this person? They've never done my courses and they're talking in these absolutes. And that's something you see on social media is that it's so easy to copy someone these days. Back, you know, back, geez, we've, we've both been in the industry learning for years, you know, we're both doing Poliquin courses back in the day. That kind of stuff you couldn't just see on social media and then just go post. You had to go fly somewhere, 
spend a week, two weeks spending a lot of money to learn that stuff. So it was, a, it was a lot harder to actually take quality knowledge and then apply it. But these days, you know, for you, you can put it online and then someone can go take it. And then someone who, you know, jack shredded is probably going to look a bit more appealing than you or me kind of talking about something. And that then allows them just to grow and grow and grow. And then it's a standpoint of who is this person and do they actually know what they're saying? And then, you know, if you ask them a question to explain it, they most likely couldn't. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing is with now with social media and everything being online is the, the format that, or the stuff that you want to copy is already kind of in the format. Like it's already like, Oh, somebody already wrote a caption or made a video or whatnot. Whereas before you'd go take an, you'd go take a course and you'd be handwriting your notes and listening to the speaker or whatever. You would have to be able to then actually articulate that message yourself. Right. You wouldn't. So whereas now it's like, you don't even really need to be our, be able to need to understand this or articulate it you can just be like okay i can just kind of see what's going on in this video and just just parrot it and it's just so easy to do so i think part of it is there's more information but it's just it's so easy to access and the access is right in the like the copy paste format for you like already the majority of the time right well it's, it's literally written out for them <laughs> that's that yeah. thing and yeah. it's funny obviously for me, I kind of look at myself more as a coach than an educator. And obviously you're more these days an educator, would I'd say, over than being a coach with with who you're kind of working with and, and stuff like that. But so often I'll do a post or a reel. And for me, I write a certain way. I, I write how I talk, which is not very, not very well. You know, I'm Australian. I talk in slang and stuff like that. But so often I'll post a reel and then two days later, I'll see someone in Europe or something post the exact same wording. And I'm like, no one talks like that. I talk like an idiot. So <laughs> you in Sweden or something, you don't talk like that. So it's just funny how it's just so easy to, to copy. And then people go, oh man, that person's so smart. And yeah, so that's social media. But what I wanted to talk about today, firstly, is obviously on social media, especially these days, content is a lot around technique and how to do things optimally, how to move things, how to make small changes in foot hand positions, which influence what you're recruiting. So this all kind of comes back to obviously biomechanics. And that was a really big course that myself and Glenn did through you. I guess, why does biomechanics matter so much? Because it's something that probably wasn't talked about, you know, before you guys. And now that and one really came on the scene. Now it seems like everyone else wants to be a biomechanics expert and do a CASM course to then become the new biomechanics course guy. So why do you think biomechanics matters so much? And why as well, do you think it's really blown up? Um, I mean, to be fair, even what I teach isn't like true biomechanics. Like if you were to go to university, I mean, I'm already teaching like a, we'll say like a very simplified specific to exercise version of mechanics. Um, but the reason it's so powerful is, I mean, you know, fitness is basically, you know, moving with resistance, right? That's, that's essentially what we're doing. And biomechanics just helps us understand how we can optimize that movement so that things feel better so that they, you know, target the tissue that we want them to, um, so that it's less stressful, less painful on our joints and all that. So like having a little bit of knowledge about how the body works 
can drastically change the exercise experience for somebody like in terms of not just like the results they're getting, but you know, the amount of discomfort they have to go through to get those results, the amount of feedback, you know, they're getting, you know, from this, from the exercises, there's research that shows like, you know, like you are more motivated when you kind of have the biofeedback from the exercise that you're doing. Like it's, you know, it's like, okay, cool. I can feel quote unquote, feel this working right. Like that, that intrinsically will make somebody push harder, you know, in a set, right. And feel better and deal with the soreness. And so it's like everything from like, the, like, okay, this stuff can actually help us get better results, but also this stuff can like actually just make it, make getting the results more fun, you know, and less uncomfortable. And I think, you know, regardless of whether you're a fitness person that likes to go into the gym to go to war and to like beat on your body, or if you're that person that like, you're really trying to get fit, but you're not in love with exercise and being sore or whatever, like either way you could use this stuff to kind of make that journey better for you. Right. I think my kind of big takeaway from, as you said, kind of elementary level kind of biomechanics is it still just gives you a bit, a lot better understanding of what each exercise is actually doing, especially, you know, mm-hmm. you're doing, and this is what makes training, I think, more enjoyable for myself, but especially writing programs for clients. When I write thousands of programs, you you have so many more options when you start to understand, all right, this arm path here, this elbow tucked here can influence this, or this this angle here can influence this portion of the back a little bit more. And I think that's why for myself and even my friends who are coaches in the industry, that's something that's made training or writing training programs a lot more fun rather than just go, all right, do this exercise because it's good. Do a deadlift because it uses a lot of muscle mass. That's yeah, great. Decision. Decision fatigue, I think, is a huge obstacle for for people, like when they're writing programs or even if they're just trying to figure out what to do on their own, because, you know, there's so many exercises, right? And everybody's got an opinion about them. So if if you're not educated, you're just kind of stuck in a sea of, you know, choices with no direction of what to go. And if you're just listening to other people, there's not, there's not a, there's not a huge consensus you know, if, if you're on social media, like what the best exercises are, right? Maybe there's a consensus in the little circle you're in, right? But that's not necessarily a good place to be. Like, you don't want to like just join a tribe and just only do their exercises or or whatnot. And then that's the world you live in and you can never leave there. Um, so I think, yeah, like from a programming standpoint, like actually being able to be more goal orientated and then just have a decision-making process of, well, this is what I want to do okay, I know these exercises do that because now I understand like, you know, how they, how they line up with the body. For sure. With saying that, obviously I think through N1, there's been a lot of not necessarily new exercises because that's something I think you guys often get misrepresented for where people are like, oh, Asim's trying to reinvent the wheel, but often the stuff that you're posting is something you've, you know, you've seen done even in Arnold stage. Um, but it's kind of focusing a bit more on really identifying what you're trying to target, not just, all right, do a pull up because it's good for upper back, do a row because it's good for upper back. It's trying to give you a bit more understanding of, well, what do we actually need? And the big basics, they're great. You know, they're going to work for a lot of people, but what happens if you've, been doing the big basics and then you've got a weak point and those big basics continue to allow that strength to improve 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 and then that weak point is not growing and developing and just by doing those big big movements 
it's kind of magnifying the weak point, which is not growing. And that's where I think with the N1s education, it's become a lot more about, hey, well, that's great. You can do these big basics, but hey, you've got a portion of your body not growing as well. Well, maybe we can look at it this way. And that's something that I think is really powerful, but you've probably seen a lot a lot of people in the industry don't seem to like that. They don't seem to like getting away from different or, hey, why we, do we need to make this change? Because this used to work for Arnold and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's almost like there's an objection to thought, like when it comes to looking at exercises, because like you said, like, yeah, sure, we've come up with some exercises that are new. Um, but also a lot of what we do is we've just improved our understanding around about like existing exercises, right? Like I didn't invent a, a one arm pull down, right? Like that's, that's people have been pulling on cables from a variety of angles, right? Since, you know, those machines existed. Uh, all we did was say, Hey, um, what we can do now is we can start to discern from the different angles that you're pulling, right? We can be a little bit more goal specific on, you know, how you want to pull from that. And I think adding that level of nuance, for individuals that just wanted to just, you know, be like, oh, this just this is just an upper body pull, or this just works back. As soon as you start laying layering that in there, and people start having those discussions, I think if you don't understand that, that that complexity or that nuance kind of let like makes people kind of want to like pull back and be like, oh no, you don't need to do that. And I think some of that is fear, some of that is stubbornness, um, some of that's just a, a disinterest in wanting to be that detailed, right? Like some people just like, yeah, they just like to go and smash things. They like to do their, their barbell lifts or whatever. Um, and if that's you, that's, you know, that's you, but you shouldn't be upset that somebody else wants to take a more, a more thoughtful approach. So I don't, I don't really resonate at all with the people that are, we'll say anti-nuance, you know, when it comes, when it comes to training, right? I mean, the, the argument that they'll make is like, oh, well, it's, it's unnecessary or you don't need it or it doesn't make a big of a difference or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of your opinion. And there's a lot of it depends in there and you don't actually have any evidence that it isn't beneficial. Right. Usually like the only thing is, is like, well, so-and-so bodybuilder forever ago, like, you know, they didn't do that. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, if you're just a little bit more informed, you realize that a ton of them did. Like if you look at the old school bodybuilders, like one, everybody was complaining about a body part, right? Like, you know, for Arnold, it was his calves for a while. Like, like every bodybuilder had that phase where they were trying every single exercise and every variation that they could do. You know, how do you think we got donkey calf braces, right? You think some dude was just like, you know what, it'd be really good. So I just had two dudes just like, you know, jump on, jump on my back and do calf braces that way. Like people were doing all sorts of weird shit, trying to figure out like, Hey, how can, how, how can I, how can I bring up this body part that's not working for me or whatever? Um, or, you know, feel this thing that I'm not feeling, et cetera. Um, and it seems like there was that area where, or that era where er experimentation and stuff was like, it was cool. And then whatever, I think it just, it can, you know, I think with the evidence-based stuff and whatnot, when that started to come in, people all of a sudden started to just really become closed-minded to trying things just you know just trying things out right and and seeing what happens is like okay now you know if we don't have a peer-reviewed research reason to do this then that then that's a no-no you don't need you don't need to be doing that um you know um and i also just think that you know 
everything's tribal these days, right? So as soon as you start doing something different enough from one person, it's like, okay, that person is no longer in my tribe. So I'm just going to be anti what they're doing because it's different than this thing that we're doing over here. Yeah. What Catherine and I were talking about before we start recording was, I was just saying how I kind of feel like the whole education industry or even just the fitness industry has become just this kind of political scene. You're either on one side or the other. And, and you know, what you kind of see with the political scene, obviously, is if someone has a, a good idea, but if they're on the other side, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Whereas mm-hmm. with, you know, this whole training side of it, if you're on one side, if you're on the evidence-based crew and stuff like that, if you say something, you can you, you can do no wrong. You know, then if you're on, on another side of the world, say, on a nutrition side of something, you can do no wrong. And it's kind of hard because if the new idea is not coming from a person within a certain circle. It seems like it just gets discredited. And, and if it's not, as you said, something which has a meta analysis around it, which says this is the best way to do it, then it gets dismissed. But the funny thing is from doing this for so long, I know for a fact, the super, super sciencey people who you know, I'm all a big. I'm a big fan of as well. I know the super sciencey people who have been coaches for years love anecdote. They always love to say, "Well, this worked for my for my clients, and I've seen this work for this person, and and I trained this person for years, and this happened." And you know, I do it myself a lot. But when I say anecdote, I get dismissed a lot of, especially you know yourself as well. But then when other people in certain communities use anecdote, then it's great perfect anecdotes fine so it's, it's one of those things where it seems you know rules for me and then not so much for other people and that's again something where i find makes the industry not as great as it could be because it seems like new ideas are only acceptable if it's coming from a certain side or a certain person and then you can't go against against the status quo if you're not x person yeah it's it's become very um I mean, political is a great way to put it, where if your facts now are not based off of the merit, but they're based off of who said them, right? Just, just, just like it isn't, just like it isn't politics, right? So, um, you know, we, even even when it comes down to the research, you know, and when a study comes out that certain people don't like, I've seen people just like they'll just throw their hands up in the air and they'll, they'll you know, they'll stay up all night for three days, just trying to find ways that they can be like, Oh, this evidence, you know, must be crap because it doesn't suit my biases. Um, I mean, we know somebody like that very well. Uh, and it's unfortunate because it does hold us back as an industry. Like I think this, the fitness community grew because of people talking to each other and sharing ideas. I mean, that's, that's really what grew this industry. Like for, it went from like, you know, a small little like fringe thing of just, you know, you know, small group of people, like just, you know, getting insanely Jack and the average person being like, you know, just giving them like the side eye, right. Whatever to where now, now fitness is mainstream, you know, and it's trendy and, and, and it's really growing. Um, but it has, it is losing a lot of the things that caused it to grow and like caused it to evolve so much. Right. Because, the reality is, is like, I mean, even it doesn't matter how sciencey you are when it comes down to coaching and when it comes down to what you do in the gym, a very, very, very small portion of what you can do is legitimately evidence-based, right? Like basically 
you can get some principles, but then when it comes down to exercise selection, you know, how many sets, how many reps and all these things, like, man, we don't have clear scientific evidence that's like, Hey, this is exactly how you do it. Right. Otherwise, you know, there would just be like, here's the program and that's, that's how you train people. And that would be like, here's the evidence-based handbook of, of training or whatever. Um, you know, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so the majority of coaches, the majority of people training are still using a tremendous amount of anecdote and observational data. Right. And I think you are doing yourself a disservice if you dismiss that and you are doing other people a disservice by just dismissing what they say simply because it is anecdote, you know, or whatever. Right. Because, but that's still like our brand is N one, right. That's essentially like your N of one experience. And, you know, so you can't dismiss somebody else's N of one experience. So if you try something and it works for you, who am I to be like, well, that shouldn't, that didn't work for you. You must be wrong because this over here says this, or it doesn't suit what I do. It's like, actually, no, the most contextual evidence you have is your own N1 of experience. We may not always know cause and effect. Like, how do I know that it's the new exercise that I'm doing or the fact that I switched to one of my foods or the you know fancy new supplement that I'm trying, or how do I know of all the things that are going in my life? What is making a difference? That's hard to tell. That's where research is helpful because it can be like, okay, they can eliminate all the variables and be like, all right, we're going to test and see what this one variable does. But in your life, your what results you're getting are always the cumulative of everything in your life, your environment, your stress, your nutrition, your training, all of that stuff. Um, but that's it's the only thing that actually matters is the accumulation of all of it, right? That because because you can't you can't remove you can't remove parts of your life and then just be like, well, I'll be, I'm going to be getting good results because I can remove just magically hit the you know decrease stress button and then that goes away and now it's like okay now I can do this you know super high volume approach. That's not how it works. That's the thing you often see though. Even when people do training programs, I get obviously a lot of people do my my programs and sometimes I'll have someone come to me and they do a program for four or five weeks and they say, Oh, it didn't work for me. And then, but then they go on and tell me, you know, they were going through a divorce. They weren't sleeping and all this stuff and every problem under the sun. And of, of course that's going to influence your ability to perform. And then often they'll come back to me six months later and they'll tell me, Hey, I did redid that program. I did it for 12 weeks. Everything was great in life and absolutely crushed it. Nothing's changed with the program. It's just that their whole where they're at in life has obviously changed dramatically. And that's the funny thing is that when, especially when looking at hypertrophy, building muscle is not just going to be that one exercise. You know, that's where people kind of get make or break. You have to do this exercise or when you take away an exercise, it's, as you said, there's so many factors and what are you doing with your nutrition? So often I see, for example, with glute training, when I post something, I'll, I'll, women especially obviously will say well I've, I've been doing your ideas and you know i didn't grow my glutes and then that sounds like oh, okay well maybe they're not that great the ideas but then they finish with i've been in a prep i've been dieting i've been on 30 40 percent calorie deficit well then again of course you're not going to be getting probably the hypertrophy gains from that standpoint and this is where i think often when people do things, they don't really take in, as you said, the full picture. It's just like in isolation. And that's where though I often get, you know, confused myself with 
looking at studies, and this is something I want to chat to you about, is that when looking at studies, people seem to take really, really big conclusions from studies I've seen. And for example, let's say there's a study on a leg leg extension. They do a four-week study and they'll say, it gets a little bit more hypertrophy in X position than Y. And it's minimal. And then obviously in the study, there might be 16 people and there's going to be 12 that works for, but then there's going to be outliers on either end. And it seems like we always talk about, well, this is what the average says, but then we also often then don't take away the outliers on either end. And then from that one one study, it seems to form such a big conclusion to these people to do everything. So how do you see a study and then think, what's useful with this? Is it is it actually truthful? And does this study go against what I've seen in the gym a lot from anecdote working with people? Like how, how do you kind of form an opinion of a study? Well, what I do is based off of the, the principles that I have formed, right? Like that, that's ultimately what leads to my, you know, we'll say the majority of my decisions is they're all like, okay, I take into the principles and then I take the individual into consideration and I apply those principles to the individual. So when I'm looking at a study, I'm looking at how does this influence the principles that I currently have, right? Does it, does it shift those at all? I don't look at, it's like, okay, if they compared two things and one was better that I'm just therefore then going to just do the thing that, that was better. Um, because with research, you lose all of the context. So if they do a study and they just compare one exercise, that doesn't tell you what the difference would have been if you were always doing, or if you were, if you were doing other exercises and in pretty much nobody does just one exercise in a program. And a lot of these, a lot of these studies, that's, you know, what, what they are, they just want to look at one thing. Right. And so they do a whole bunch of that one thing, you know, maybe, and very little of anything else. Um, and, you know, it might not be in a relatable population to what you're, you know, to those people. And then when you look at the individual data points on most of these things, like, especially with things like training frequency and volume or whatever, you'll see that like, man, there's people that did really awesome and then really bad in each group, meaning that, you know, on average, you know, the study may have found that X amount of volume seemed ideal on average, but per individual that like, if you actually look at how it worked for individuals, that that average volume would have been like great for some terrible for others. Some needed more, some needed less. So what we can do is we can look at that and we can get an idea of like, okay, on average or in principle, in terms of we're looking at different types of exercises, we can be like, okay, these exercises seem to have this quality, right. Or, you know, this type of volume, like moving towards this type of volume, most people tend to go this, but it's not always the case. So you can take in principle of like, all right, where am I going to put the baseline for somebody in terms of what I'm going to try and start with? But then I have to look at that individual response because they may be the person on either side of, of the bell curve you know, from there or from whatever, from whatever that idea is. And when it comes to exercise stuff, you know, you definitely got to just focus on the principal stuff because what we don't have. So like the study you're probably referencing, maybe one of them, this is like the leg curl study where like, Oh, seated leg curls better than lying leg curls. So, okay. No more lying leg curls. Everybody just do seated leg curls. Right. If that's your conclusion from that, to me, that's a big mistake. Cause you're removing the context of like, well, if you have RDLs in a program, you're already hitting the hamstrings in kind of a stretch position. So would that mean that the lying leg curl actually is more complementary to that? 
rather than doing the seated leg curl, which is just kind of like more, more of the same. Is there a point of diminishing returns? Um, you know, because we've seen in some research where it's like, hey, training both ends actually seems to have a pretty good hypertrophy effect too, like doing a short partial and a lengthened partial alternating those versus just doing, you know, the lengthened stuff, right? And there's all sorts of benefits to training positions, different positions other than just hypertrophy, right? Like most people want to have, you know, joints that feel good. They want to have good mobility and stuff too. They, you know, on top of the hypertrophy so that, you know, training through full range of motion and stuff like that isn't necessarily, you know, a bad idea for some of those attributes, even if, you know, when all the research in the world is done, we find out, yeah, lengthen better. Um, and also and look at that lying leg curl study and the the, uh, the lying leg curl is lengthened for the sartorius, which for those of you guys who don't know, it's like this S-shaped muscle that crosses the quads. It looks really gnarly when people get super lean or whatnot. Super important muscle for stabilizing your hip rotation in the bottom of the squat and stuff like that. It's actually more stretched in a lying leg curl. So if you just decide never to do your lying leg curls, well, then now you're never lengthening the sartorius muscle and training its knee flexion function, right? So I think it's very easy to want to look at a study and just like try and just take a big conclusion and just like build your whole whole world around these very simple rules but humans are complex systems right programming is a complex thing there's tons of moving variables right so you have a complex human being doing a complex you know program with nutrition variables and you know exercise order and all this stuff and whatever going on to think that you can just take simple rules and put it in there and that's going to work for everybody to me that's that's laughable yeah so with saying that obviously you're talking about you know the different variables and genetics for people this is why kind of going back to the argument about hey, don't need it, make a change because ex-bodybuilder did exercises and stuff like that. Something I always think, obviously not being naturally jacked and training people who seem to, you know, you give them something that they do and they just blow up and you think, well, that didn't work for me. I wish that happened. One of the things I find is when people say, well, Ronnie Coleman didn't train this way and stuff like that, I think often enough, too often people don't think, well, the people tra training in the gym and probably learning from yourself, following my stuff, they're not Ronnie Coleman. They don't have the world's greatest genetics where they can look at a barbell and grow. I remember Phil Heath used to say he 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 was told he shouldn't train arms because they'd just get too big for the rest of his physique. Then I'm looking at my tiny arms thinking, I wish that was the case. So that's the thing I kind of find funny with putting out, you know, the nuance of, hey, maybe – instead of just doing this exercise, let's try this. And when you look at, for example, in sport, look at the often, you know, the best coaches of all time. They're not often the genetic freaks. You know, we look at American sport, Bill Belichick, the Patriots and Nick Saban, you know, with Alabama. And um, they're not star football players. They were, but they understood what it took to create stars and things like that. And that's why I find it, quite strange that especially a lot of super intelligent people tend to go back to well this work for this person and you know i'm sure if i was usain bolt sprint coach who knows nothing about sprinting he probably still would have won 100 meters but for me being a good coach you know i've trained world champions in bikinis and stuff like that and helping someone who's great 
go to outstanding is often a lot easier than helping someone go from 15th place to fourth place. And that's where, you know, great coaching can often come from being a bit more nuanced and not just saying, well, this works for this person. And, you know, training Lauren back in the day, you know, Lauren squatted, she deadlifted and she built a world champion physique. But a lot of other, my clients aren't like that. They don't respond like that. And that's why I think it's such a strange argument when people just take such conclusions from one study or such conclusions as this is the only way to do stuff off one great physique or something like that. Yeah. When things come easy, you don't have to problem solve, right? Like that's, that's just, just the real, like, I mean, why, why would you make things harder than they need to be? So when you're looking at naturally gifted athletes and stuff like that, the, what what they have to do a lot of times is so foreign to the person that's not gifted because it's really just about like making sure they don't get injured, right? Like just don't get in the way almost at a certain point in time, right? Like in athletics, that's like, like in, at least in the US here, like when what the strength coach is like, what's their job? Don't, don't injure the athlete. Like it's, you know, some, you know, a hundred million dollar athlete. What's your job? Don't, don't injure them. That, that's what your job is. Don't, don't injure the hundred million dollar asset. Um, but I think the, like with fitness, with sports, whatever, the irony is, is that those gifted people, if they put in the work, right? Like when talent works, it's just going to like, it's just going to be the best. Right. Um, and so people look at that, they aspire to that, but you can't mimic that if, like, even if you do have those genetics, you still shouldn't mimic that. And I think the reason that you see so many coaches and whatnot not be people that were necessarily the champions themselves, right? Like that, that's a rarity, uh, is because it's the people that have had to do a ton of problem solving that actually have now the information or the knowledge that is helpful to the other people with problems to solve, right? That, and that, that that's good. That's a. That's the thing, though, where I often hear or read someone say is that, you know, if you're a general population client or you're not a pro bodybuilder, why do you need to be doing, you know, these fancier exercises and stuff like that? Why not just do these big basics? But to me, it's often like, well, because they're not genetic freak people, they're not people who are able just to squat and just grow and they're not able just to do pull-ups and just grow actually training in a different way can not only make them feel a bit better because, hey, I can't do um, wide grip pull-ups for 10, 12 reps weighted, but I can do, you know, an iliac pull-down and I enjoy it. I feel it. It feels good. And I actually get a, wow, I can actually feel this part of my back working and I'm actually able to do more than three reps of this. And that's the, the funny thing is that the people I often think who would do really well with the more nuanced exercises are the people they tell you not to because they're the ones who aren't the genetic freaks and they're often the people who don't move as fantastically and can they can't as easily you know do an astagrass squat where they might get the benefit of a fully lengthened position or they can't do a great you know deadlift and it's the it's the people i find who really really enjoy that kind of training you know i, I honestly i train a lot of people you know thousands of people do my methods and i can tell you more than probably anyone out there that the stuff that's so popular is those more fun exercises they're often told not to do unless you're a pro whereas 
the pros I often train, they're the ones just getting amazing results with whatever I give them. They just need to do it. Mm -hmm. An analogy I, I, I like for this is people that are extremely genetically gifted, like their journey is, is like walking up a nice round hill, right? Like the incline's not too bad. They can go basically any direction they want to get to the top. No big deal. And then for people on the other end of the spectrum, it's like their journey is going up a mountain with like, you know, cliff faces and trees and boulders and all of this stuff. Right. And so in order to make the journey for the person climbing the mountain, just as easy or just as manageable as the small hill for the genetic person, you can't just try and go straight up the mountain. You can't take the same path that the genetically gifted person was. You have to kind of, you have to do like, they're called switchbacks, right? Where like you basically kind of zigzag your way. So you're not climbing up this huge steep thing, right? You have to take a different approach and you have to change direction and pivot and all the stuff. So you can use that as an analogy for periodization and using different exercises and all sorts of things. But it, essentially what it is, is it's like, look, in, if in order for you to get to the same destination, you have a lot more obstacles to overcome, like you're going to need more tools in your tool belt to overcome those obstacles, right? Because the stimulus just does not come as easy. The adaptation, right, is not to the same magnitude when, when you do the same thing. And, you know, at a certain point, I mean, you can't just work harder to try and get the same results as somebody that, you know, gets results out of less because you're just going to beat your body up, right? Like, you know, because like if you're super gifted, the amount of squats and deadlifts that you may need to do to get a great physique might not be that much, but if you take somebody that's not, and their only tool is to like, to just do more frequency and more volume and progressive overload the, at a certain point, like it actually starts to be regressive in terms of it just starts to beat their body up and, and it's like, it's, it's unattainable. Right. Um, and they're going to have, you know, all sorts of like, you know, they might have imbalances in terms of the way their physique looks and stuff like that, that are consequences for them that may not have been consequences for, for somebody else. Right. So you need, you need other tools. You need, you know, to be more strategic with the way that you're doing your programming in terms of exercise selection, in terms of volume or whatnot. Like you may need a, you know, a different type of nutrition approach, right. You might need, you know, to use some sort of, you know, periodized nutrition or cycling or whatever it is like that allows you with your busy, crazy life and you know, the windows of training that you have to work with to actually get there more successfully versus, you know, I've had clients where it's just like, yeah, I just cut out, you know, everybody's got that one, you know, friend or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, stop drinking, you know, soda or pop or whatever. And all of a sudden they just like, they get shredded with like, like no effort. Right. And then you have another person that's doing, you know, a ton and like, yeah, energy balance is like a thing, but people don't have the same, you know, weights, you know, weight stable window, right. Some people like are super metabolically flexible and thrifty other people, not so much. Like there's just so many things where you can have, very, very different experiences depending on where you are on the spectrum. So I think it's important to understand where the average is, and this is what the research can kind of tell us. So then you can get an idea of where somebody exists on that side of the spectrum, because that can be really helpful with expectations, right? Because if you're expecting, if you're expecting to grow arms as fast as Phil Heath, you're probably going to be very, very disappointed if those are, those are your expectations, right? So kind of getting an idea of where you are, knowing what's possible and having realistic goals, I think can go, can go, can go a long way. Um, and a big part of that is, is that, you know, go ahead and be inspired by 
people that look amazing and just be like, wow, that's so awesome and so cool that they look like that. Um, but don't set that standard for yourself and don't try and mimic their path of getting there. Choose your own path and set your goals relative to, you know, what is reasonable for you. It's funny you say about looking at other people as inspiration and something I always get is when someone will send me a photo of one of my clients and say, I want to look like this. And which program will make me look like this in 12 weeks? And it will be like a photo of Lauren or whatever, you know. And the person is obviously not anywhere near that level and most likely will never be. And I think social media is, because there's so many people these days with great bodies on it, on it has just kind of created this perception that it's just so easy. Everyone can do it. If you just go to the gym, you do a eight-week challenge, you're going to be a fitness model. You're going to look insane. And it's kind of just created this, I think false perception that anyone can be great for me when I was even at my bet best with my physique, looking back off and look back at photos five, six, seven, eight years ago. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I was in great shape, but you know, I still didn't have great delts. I still didn't have this. I was, I was never, no matter what I was doing, you know, from a learning and using the most advanced stuff, I was never competing against other guys who were mates and they will just train three days a week and do whatever and just look insane. And that's something where obviously genetics plays such a big role. And with that, I guess when these days we see a lot, especially yourself talking about optimal training and then you got the anti-optimal joking kind of crowd these days. Firstly, what is what you would call optimal training? Cause you, you know, you talk about it a lot and I'm sure obviously I understand, but for the audience, like, what do you mean when talking optimal training and who are you thinking this should be targeted towards exactly? And where, where does the nuance come into it that people seem to not want to understand, um, which we were joking about before with it? I mean, by definition, optimal training is just like in terms of exercises, just choosing the exercises that are going to give you the best chance of achieving your goal, Right. And so, yeah. Uh, and so when it comes to like how nuanced that needs to be, it's proportionate to how nuanced your goals are. Right. So if your goals are like, Hey, you know, I just want to get stronger at pushing things forward. Well then cool. Then a variety of things are going to be useful for that. But as soon as you start to get a little bit more nuanced and be like, okay, my goal is I have two days a week, then I can train this body part right? And I'm trying to maximize the hypertrophy, but I'd like a little bit more, say like upper chest than lower chest, right? All of a sudden now it's like, okay, now we can start to be more specific with the exercise selection that we're doing, right? Because we can pick, a, you know, we can be like, okay, you know, we can pick an exercise that, you know, works like kind of the whole chest one day, you know, to a smaller degree, but then we can pick something on the other day that works just your upper chest, like very, very specifically. And then we can really, really challenge the stimulus there. So, we can, as your goals become more specific, that helps. Now, from a need perspective, that's how I look at it. If you have specific goals, then adding the nuances really comes in. But from just a, hey, is this stuff valuable? From a coaching perspective, from a simple, just like managing volume and orthopedic joint health, right? Using these exercises can be great because they tend to be, they tend to be very, very good 
in terms of orthopedic, right? And these are these are not exercises that really strain people's joints and stuff like that. Um, and the nervous system tends to learn them relatively well because by nature, because they're biased towards one tissue, it's very easy for the body to figure out, you know, what it's supposed to be using to do this exercise and how to do it. And then you get the feedback and whatnot. So I'm not opposed to like coaches throwing these exercises in for beginners as long as they program them appropriately so that you're still getting like the total stimulus that you want. Right. So there's nothing wrong. Like if you're going to have, if you're going to train a body part three times a week, you know, and it's something like the pecs or lats that has multiple divisions, right. There's nothing wrong with being intelligent and be like, okay, cool. I'm going to do a different division. And I know how to do that, you know, with these, you know, more optimal or biased exercises if you are right. Um, but if your goals change, what's optimal changes. That's, that's, I think that's where people get lost is they just think that like, okay, uh, you know, optimal just means it's these special specialty exercises and that's not true right because if your goal is hey i need to stimulate as many muscles and as few exercises as possible well then optimal is actually going to be those like more big you know compound exercises like if you need to stimulate basically your entire lower body well then man a balanced squat not a heel elevated squat not a hack squat not a pendulum squat but like a like typical standard like you know fold as much as you can to the floor right? Squat, whatever bar position, foot position that you need to just get, you know, hip flexion, knee flexion, all of the things that's, that's going to be your best thing. Cause that's going to give you the most bang for your buck in one motion. Right. Um, so, but a lot of people is like, Oh, well, why wouldn't you just do that for, you know, beginners and just do it was like, well, that is one way to approach it. Right. Is to be like, okay, how, let, let me get that, give them the fewest number of exercises to learn possible. And I'll go that route, but it's not the only way, right. You have to kind of look at the context of, of, of who it's for. <laughs> Uh, you know, cause some people might not be coordinated enough or strong enough to do, you know, a squat well or whatever, or they got a low back issue or whatever. Right. And so like all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, just that was optimal for a beginner in general. Doesn't mean that for this beginner, that that's actually the approach to do it. You're not just going to, you know, sit here and do, you know, five pound goblet squats with them forever. And, you know, maybe in two years you can work yourself to the bar or whatever. Right. It's like, why would you do that when you could pick other exercises that might get them like significantly stronger and really help them reach their physique goals in a much, at a much faster rate something i like what you said there was you know optimal again it's kind of it's, it's a general term what, what's optimal for you is going to be different for another client you know a, a bodybuilder or a general population client optimal is obviously going to be specific to that individual and their needs and i think again it's just you know if you want to if you want to build your squat then optimal would be squatting if you want to build your deadlift you would be deadlifting when you Right, so something I often like to do is when I create my programs, I like, you know, base lifts. So I like my squat. I like my deadlift with the people I'm, I'm programming for. Cause again, I'm programming to generally these days, the mass, you know, thousands of people, it's, it's quite hard to, you know, I've only got about 10, 12 private clients these days. So I've worked with for years, but then the other people, you know, I'm programming to, you know, five, 10,000 people might buy a program. So optimal is, it's quite hard to say, then who is this individual? So then I look at trying to go, all right, what's going to cover a lot of our bang for buck? You know, so if I get someone stronger at a squat or a deadlift, as you said, we're going to be using a solid amount of muscle tissue. It's still going to lead to benefits. But that doesn't mean then you can't be doing a bit more of these isolation, fun, kind of bias movements. And 
often, you know, I, I remember I, I did a, well, I think it was an iliac pulldown, I think it was. Um, and then someone said a while ago, this is stupid. You don't need this and stuff like that on, on, as, as usual on social media. And, you know, you don't need to be targeting a sp- specific portion of lats. But then, but then when you kind of think about it, for years, people have been targeting specific things. This is why they do, you know, a vertical pull down or back in the day, you know, these people used to be say, well, do a vertical pull down for width um, and then do a horizontal pull down for, um, was it size or whatever? Thickness. And thickness. That's the word I was looking for. And yeah. then, and then, you know, oh, well do, do, do a bench for a middle chest, do an incline press for upper chest. So forever you know people have been doing this do a front raise and do a side raise so that's the kind of thing people have been doing this for years i think now it's just the whole approach is again just another level of complexity and and it's nothing complicated and that's one of the things again these are things i don't talk about much to kind of my circle and stuff like that but that's the again the kind of things that i find quite funny is that nothing you know, you say and I say is necessarily that all revolutionary. It's not what people haven't been saying. It's just, again, another level of like looking at things. And then it's like, how dare you? You're overcomplicating it. Like, what? what that's stupid. It's overcomplicating it. But it's like, well, you're already teaching 37 things to people. What's, what's wrong with teaching one or two more things so they understand that a little bit more and have a bit better understanding of really what they're trying to do? Mm-hmm. What I think, I think that part of it is funny that people have been doing this forever. And the other part that I think is funny is, is like, look, whatever exercise you're doing, something is biased in it, whether you, whether you know what it is or not, like some one, one muscle fiber in there is the muscle fiber that is going to get the most fatigued right now. What can change is the, like the ratio of like how much the target thing is versus the other things and stuff as we start to get like to some of these more you know, finesse, nuanced movement movements that have like a greater bias, but it's like, there's still always a limiter to everything that you do. And you see that in people's physiques, like everybody that does, you know, squat bench and deadlift doesn't develop the same physique. Right. And it's not just genetics. It's also just like how they end up hypertrophying over the time. Right. Like you'll see some people like them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's something in, in every lift, something in there is going to be getting the most stimulus and something is going to be getting the least. And there's going to be things that are in between and all understanding biomechanics and like understanding how to do these bias motions does is it lets you know, based off the exercise you're doing, what's the highest probability of that being the thing that you want it to be. Right. So it's like, okay, how do I, if my middle chest is what I want to work on or my upper or my lower chest or, you know, what part of my glutes do I want to work on? Understanding this just kind of lets you know, like, okay, if that's the part of my glutes that I want to do, which exercises for glutes are going to give me the highest probability that that part of my glute for sure is getting as much stimulus as it possibly can get out of all of the exercises that I could do from there. Right. And that doesn't mean that nothing else gets any stimulus. Like that's what I think is funny. People are like, Oh, you don't need to do a, uh, pull down to bias this part of the lats. And I'm like, regardless of what angle you pull from, you're biasing one part of the lats or another. All we're doing is just actually being educated and knowing, we'll, we'll put it this way, we're doing it on purpose. Other people are just doing it on accident and just hoping for the best. And that's, eventually that's, that's they, the they find out it. in a few years what they've been biasing when they see their physique grow. And not grow. Yeah. 
right? I'm just trying not to have to do it for two years to figure out what it does, right? <laughs> so I guess just on that topic, I remember you have a week I posted like a a reverse lunge and kind of how to execute it for for getting more glute and and whatnot instead of more quad and stuff. And then another guy messaged me. He's like, "Oh, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a lunge. It doesn't matter. It's going to be this or that." And then I just clicked on their profile, and then here they are saying, "If you want more quad in a squat, elevate your heels. If you want to do this, it's just like the exercise that's always been done that says, you know, get more quads, get deeper in a squat, blah blah blah." But then if you do something now for an exercise which hasn't been done for twenty years, then it doesn't matter. So it's just funny. I guess the the constant. The constant kind of one one way is okay. Some exercises you you can talk about, other exercises you can't. You're a bad person if you do that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Coach Mark Carroll podcast, everyone. This one's a big podcast with Cassim, so we're going to break it up into two parts, and next week we'll release the second part. If you want to find Cassim on Instagram, obviously search Cassim Hansen, and obviously his education business at N1 Education. Highly recommend following Kasim. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to find me, guys, obviously coachmarkcarol.com or carolperformance.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star five star rating and also press a follow on our um, on Apple Podcasts. At the very top of the screen, you'll see follow. Press that, guys. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it out to your friends, family, and social medias. It helps a lot. So thanks, guys. We'll be back in a few days' time with episode part two with Cassim.